All right, so we're going to do the Q&A, question and answer. So uh, as I've mentioned in the past, really nothing off limits except trying to uh, pit faculty against faculty. That's anathema. That's not allowed. Other than that, um, whatever topics related to scripture passages, theology, Christian living, ministry, and no guarantee I can answer them, but we'll take a stab at it. So with that in mind, who wants to go first? Who wants to go second? All right. All right. All right, thanks. Could you hear the question? Yes? Okay. Um, Question for those that didn't hear it was just about shepherding the shepherds, how to keep balance in your life and not be over, you know, burned out or overtaxed, et cetera, as a a pastor. I think one of the key things um, uh, related to that, rather than, and I know other pastors do this, I'm not saying this is not good, but I haven't gone this route. Uh, I know other pastors often will connect with other pastors in the community and that type of thing. And they, you know, they kind of build a fellowship, et cetera. And I'm friends with, with pastors in the community. I mean, uh, Brian Clark over at Trinity, he and I get together quarterly. We have lunch and talk about ministry, et cetera. So, you know, I, I've done that kind of thing. I've, I've had lunch with Jim Keen at E-Free, and et cetera. Uh, but I think a little different route. One of the things very, very early on in my ministry that I was... Uh, challenged to do and instructed by from scripture and men who taught me was the importance from scripture of a plurality of godly leaders in the church and so early on in the ministry here uh, that was just a priority is to see to it that that whatever I could do to facilitate having godly elders lay elders and staff elders now if you you know if a church isn't large enough you maybe can't have more than one uh, staff elder, because they, maybe that's all they can afford, but you can still have lay elders. And so uh, that, that's, that, was, that was, I would say, a top two or three priority from, from very early on. And so as a result of that, and God has graciously granted that, we have a great elder team, both lay elders and staff elders. And um, so I don't, for one thing, I don't function as sort of the top dog around here, um, I'm senior pastor in the sense I do most of the preaching and I lead our elders meetings, but even leading them, I don't dominate them. It's not my agenda. So um, I just take seriously that idea in Scripture that even like Acts 14.23 says, and when they had appointed elders in every church, elders plural in every church singular. And this is really important for me because coming out of my background, I came, out of, I came to the Lord in a Southern Baptist church in the Southern Baptist Church, for those of you who are familiar with the denomination, a lot of good things, a lot of strengths, but, but one thing that's, in my opinion, dangerous is that, boy, the pastor is the guy. I mean, he is, the pastor is, you know, and in fact, in most Southern Baptist churches, you have one elder, he's it, and then you have deacons, and then you have trustees. And I can remember as a teenager when I came to the Lord in this church and I, thinking through that, thinking, 
okay, I've read the word deacons in the Bible, but I can't find the word trustees. And I couldn't find that in the Bible. And I didn't know really what the structure was. And after a while, I realized, oh, there's one guy that's top. And then the deacons in my church, our church, are actually elders. And the trustees are actually deacons. And once I got the terminology straight, it helped. But it still didn't help seeing a guy that had so much power so, centered in one man, you know, so much. So I determined not to go that way. I did, not, not because of that, not reactionary, but just looking at Scripture, that, that you have a, a plurality of leaders. And so here in our church, uh, I'm one vote among many on the elder board. I, I have no more power, no more authority than anyone else. And uh, I, that, I think, has, in addition to just being what I think is the more biblical route, that has served, I think, to protect me from feeling like I have to do everything, and therefore I'm frazzled all the time. I got to cover all the bases, you know. So we have elders that they're over men's ministry and women's ministry and this, and I don't feel like I got to get my fingers in that. I don't have to be told everything that's going on in that. I mean, sometimes it's a little embarrassing when someone will say, "Well, you know, what, what's this lady study doing over here?" And I, I, I have no clue. I'm not a part of that. That's not under my, you know, authority. So. So I think, in answer to your question, Steffi, that, that would be a key. It's just that the, the, the ministry load is spread out over men, and uh, the shepherding load is spread out over men. Um, and I know that I have a unique role in the sense that I'm kind of the voice uh, of our elder team often because I you know, speak for our elder team. So I recognize there's a uniqueness in, in that type of... But um, a plurality of leaders, uh, lay and staff leaders, I think is, has been really huge in in protecting from what you're talking about there. Uh, lack of accountability that some pastors have, lack of, of camaraderie, lack of shepherding one another. So I have a great relationship with the elders. They encourage me. I encourage them. They rebuke me. I rebuke them. It just, it just works that way. So, yeah. Good. Great question. Uh, next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, and I think you're right. We, we do go to Daniel and the Psalms, which use that in, in a messianic way. And I think that was one of the reasons why Jesus liked that title. It, it connected him with messianic prophecies. But I think the other, just like we know that the term Son of God is a title of deity, Son of Man is a title of humanity. And I think the other reason why Jesus used it, not only to identify with such as Ezekiel as a prophet, spokesman for God, but to emphasize his humanity. It was, it was actually, if you look at all the occurrences in the Gospels, it was his favorite way to refer to himself as son of man. And I think it was, in large measure, to emphasize his humanity so that people would not take the view that a lot of times we take as evangelicals, and that is, well, you can't really relate to Jesus because he was God, you know, or he can't relate to us because he was God. So we, although we would assert his humanity, we maybe don't, give it as much credence. So I think Jesus used that and liked that term, loved that term, to emphasize his full and complete humanity, to emphasize his oneness with us as, as man, so that he can relate to us, we can relate to him. So we don't dismiss his example, say, yeah, well, he was God, that type of thing. Yeah, so great question, good. All right, next, where are we going next? Over here. Mm-hmm. And 
Yes. Uh, it will depend, your take on that passage, and if you didn't hear, it's about Hebrews 3 and 4 and, and God's house and entering his rest, etc. Um, it will depend on your, your interpretation of that will depend on your entire view of Hebrews, which is not an easy topic to, to wrestle through. Um, I'll just mention the two of the main views or primary views uh, of the book of Hebrews and then how that comes to bear on the interpretation of that passage. Uh, a very common view, very uh, valid, solid view, is that the warning passages in Hebrews are spoken to Jewish people who have been exposed to the gospel and have not embraced it. I mean, they, they, they're interested, they've been around it, but they haven't really stepped over the line, if you will, whatever phrase you want to use. And therefore, the warning passages are saying, you know, if you don't, if you just come to the edge, but you, 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 know, you pull back, uh, you face the judgment of God, and so the, that, that the exhortation that the writer of Hebrews is giving is to call them to salvation. And if that is your view of Hebrews, then you would take that entering into his rest as ceasing from your own works, as in the works toward salvation, and entering into God's rest, God's salvation. So that would be the idea. That's how you would take that. Entering into rest, that is, entering into salvation. It's a very prominent view of evangelical scholars, very solid, uh, very defensible view. So that's one take. The other take is to view the recipients of the letter as all believers, or for the most part. I mean, you, you, you would never say about any congregation that everyone's a believer in it, but, but you know, you, you, in general, you hope the church is made up of believers. So this, this group was believers, and that what was going on was they were facing persecution as Christians. Therefore, they were tempted to go back into Judaism and sort of sit out, ride out the the persecution, and then once that was over, their plan was just to come back to Christianity. And so if that's your grid, then the, then the warning passages are saying, don't go back, don't go back into Judaism. If you do, you will face the judgment of God that is coming on Judaism, which came on Judaism in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Josephus tells us 1.1 million Jews were killed in that war, in that destruction. Three historians tell us that the the Jewish believers who did not feel an affinity to the temple and Judaism left before the war broke out, went over to the east side of the Jordan and survived the war. None of them lost their lives. So some scholars, some commentators will say that's what it's talking about. So if that's your grid, if that's your view, then rather than seeing this entering into his rest as an idea of entering into salvation, leave Judaism, it's a... Uh, it's a don't go back into Judaism, enter his rest, stay there, even if you face persecution, which he talks about in chapter 10. So the rest, the, the Sabbath rest, etc., uh, your, your take on that is really going to be influenced by your take on the whole book. So those are, those are the two views. Very similar, talking about coming out of Judaism, but, but is it coming out to embrace Christianity to become a Christian, or is it, no, don't go back into Judaism, enter into his rest, the rest that you find in the New Covenant, etc. So, th- those are your two options. All right, good. Next. Um, 
Sure. Uh, this is in Mark 3 that she asked about the unpardonable sin. It's also in Matthew 12. It's a great question, a very important question, because, um, you know, just, just to illustrate its importance, I, I won't ever forget this. This happened actually with me more than once, but once fairly recently, where I had a man call me just sobbing and in, in just uncontrollable fear that he had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He had committed the unpardonable sin. And my first comment, just to settle him down before talking about what it was, was to say, you know, if you're worried that you've committed it, you haven't committed it. Okay, so put that to rest. Because if you piece together all the information, and it, it's important to understand what it is and what it isn't. Um, if you piece together all the information, basically what you have is this. Jesus, by the time this happened, now it's Mark 3, which seems very early. It's only because Mark skips about 18 months to two years of Jesus' ministry. And he just jumps in and basically highlights the Galilean ministry. So it looks like it's early, but this isn't real early in the ministry of Jesus. So for an extended period of time, the Jewish leaders had the opportunity to see Jesus performed miracles, here's the key now, in the power of the Holy Spirit as proof of His deity and His Messiahship. In other words, you could say it this way, the Holy Spirit granted Jesus the ability to prove or defend or present His Messiahship in deity. So the miracles of Jesus were then basically the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit. So what the Jewish leaders did is they took all of that evidence from the Holy Spirit and they willfully, knowingly, recognizing it wasn't true, said, we've got to discredit this guy. We've got to renounce him once and for all because too many people are following him. So we're going to say that all this evidence is actually proof he did what he did in the power of Satan. So they attributed the the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan in affirming the, the works that affirmed his deity and messiahship. And Jesus said to them, that is unforgivable. But when you have all this time to see the Holy Spirit's evidence, his testimony, his testifying of me through my miraculous works, which he has empowered me to do, and you take that, and you don't mistakenly come to this conclusion. It's not like they made a mistake or they were confused. They knew that this wasn't true, but they said, we have to somehow discredit it So we will say it's satanic power that enabled them to do it. And Jesus said to them, that's unforgivable. So there's a sense in which, technically speaking, the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can't be committed today. In this sense, you need Jesus bodily present on earth, performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit to prove his deity and messiahship and having people look at all that evidence, knowing what it's saying and willfully choosing to attribute it to Satan. You have to have all those factors for it to really be. You know, sometimes people say, well, rejecting Christ is the unpardonable sin. Well, no, it's not. I mean, how many of you in here, just out of curiosity, how many of you responded to the gospel the very first time you heard it? Maybe, okay, one's going, maybe I did. So maybe one of you. So what that means is that every one of us in this room rejected the gospel. We rejected Christ. We said no to the Holy Spirit. We said Everyone in this room, you can't say that the unpardonable sin is rejecting Christ or, or it's you know, refusing the Holy Spirit um, because that's not it scripturally and it doesn't bear out experientially because very few people come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel. 
then some will say, okay, well, that's not it. It's, it's rejecting Christ until you die. Well, that's not really it, because if you die in unbelief, you're going to hell anyway. You don't need, it's not like, you know, this was something they did in life, and Jesus was saying, from, this is it. No more chances. So it's not like you die in unbelief. We, we understand if you die in unbelief, you are condemned. But Jesus is talking about people who are alive. So that's the, that's the unpardonable sin. If you look at all the historical parameters, and for that reason, then I, I don't think, technically speaking, it, it could be committed. Now, a similar parallel that I think is probably valid is it is valid to warn people that if you do reject Christ and you do reject the gospel repeatedly, Scripture does talk about the point, basically, of no return, where your heart is so hard, you know, like Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then eventually God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, you know, there, there's some parallel there. There's, a, there's a, a valid warning to unbelievers and a danger, but we, can't, we're, we can never be in the position to say to someone, you just committed the unpardonable sin, that's it. No more chances for you. Good, good question. All right, next. Where are we going next? Okay. Mark 14, uh, Mark 13, 19. For in those days there will be a tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, God's days until this time, nor ever shall be. And then jumping down to verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And it talks about the coming of the sun man and gathering the elect. Sure. Uh, it seems like that's saying we go through the tribulation by one of the years. Sure, sure. Yeah, this is a parallel to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And uh, what Jesus basically teaches here and what he teaches in Matthew 24 and 25 is this. There's no, absolutely no doubt about it. The second coming of Christ is post-tribulational. No doubt. So then, coming back to your question, do we go through the tribulation? And the answer to that question is, if, if the second coming of Christ to the earth and the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air is the same event, then absolutely we're going through the tribulation. Yes. But that's the issue. That's the issue. Can you coordinate 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. That is the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, commonly called the rapture. Um, so the question is, is that the same as this? Or, or Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So Jesus said, he couldn't have been any clearer, immediately after the tribulation of those days is his second coming. So the, the question you have to wrestle through is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, we shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Um, John 14, I go to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come again and receive it in myself to take you to the Father's house. So are those passages the same? And of course, those who hold to a pre-trib rapture or mid-trib or pre-wrath view would say those aren't the same. Well, no, that's, oh, that's not accurate. Because actually, more I'm reading on pre-wrath, they are kind of equating rapture and second coming but it's sort of a different it's sort of rapture but you're extended for a little while and then the second coming so they would say it's so let me say it this way pre-trib mid-trib see the great gathering together unto jesus in the air is a separate event pre-wrath and post-trib see them as the same event so that's what you have to wrestle through
I, I, I have more trouble co- coordinating them. I see them as separate events. That's just my theology. So I'm not convinced that these say we're going through the tribulation. But you're right. You're reading this. If you're reading the Olivet Discourse, um, and if this is the, the only event, then we're going through the tribulation. No doubt about it. Yeah. So, interesting. August 28th, uh, about two months ago, I signed a contract to write a book on the Olivet Discourse. I'm working on it now. On Matthew, but Matthew's account of it. Matthew 24 and 25. So that's one of the things I've been presenting there, is that if, if, if 1 Thessalonians 4... And Matthew 24, 29 are the same. We're going through the tribulation. And if they're not, then there's other possibilities. Yeah. So, yeah, Jeff. Uh, you know, John, I don't know that that's completely accurate. I mean, maybe the circle of churches you're in is pre-trib, but I think if you look at believers as a whole, you know, as a whole, I think that uh, evangelical believers, I think more would be post-trib, amil. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that's probably more the predominant view, j- just in general. But it depends on your circles. Again, you know, what, what kind of churches you're in. Um, you know, um, for me, uh, you know, how, I mean, I didn't even know what this stuff was till I got to Bible college. So it's not like I necessarily had a, had a view that I had to wrestle through. Um, I, a real stretcher for me was when uh, Marv Rosenthal, who used to be the director at Friends of Israel Ministry, a ministry I have loved and appreciated, and, and always appreciate him and still do, uh, right when I, about the time I was in Bible college or shortly thereafter, left uh, Friends of Israel, and over this issue because he switched from pre-trib to pre-rat and then wrote a book on it. And it's a, it's, I've read his book a couple times now. It's a good book. It's, uh, I think, helpful in the discussion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've had to wrestle with it through the years, or wrestle with the issue through the years. Uh, um, but, you know, as I began to wrestle with it, of course, we're all probably going to have a bias on the way you're first taught. I mean, you know, the guys that I was taught by uh, in this area uh, are guys that are, are you know, if you, if you hold to a pre-trib, pre-mill, which is the view I hold, I mean, these are like the, the kingpins, you know, like I sat under guys like Walvert and Pentecost and, you know, so, I mean, J. Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come, 500 and some pages is just classic. Whatever your views on, you know, eschatology, it's just a classic work. And so, you know, I admit that's, that was my exposure. So I, as I started learning about eschatology, those were the guys I was exposed to. And so those were the views I embraced. But I didn't embrace them and then just mindlessly shut it off. I've continued. When the pre-wrath view came out, I read several books by it. And like I said, by men that I respect. And I think there is way more compelling evidence for pre-wrath than most people who reject it realize. There is a lot of evidence there. And it's, it's uh, I, I think, a, a, a compelling view. I don't necessarily hold to it. but um, And, of course, the other thing is you would have to say, well, if the majority of Christians hold to post-trib amil, you'd be foolish not to look at it, right? I mean, just to say, oh, I, I know I'm right. I'm, that would be foolish. So, yeah, I have looked at it a lot through the years. And, um, you know, that's why when I teach on it, um, I always say, well, just like in answer to this question, you know, 
here's the issues you need to wrestle through, here's what I've wrestled through, here's the view I've come to, wrestle it for yourself. Uh, if the great gathering together of Jesus in the air and the second coming are the same, clearly it's post-tribulational. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So, uh, you know, when I teach on it, it's, it's sort of one of those things. I would never teach it the same way I would teach the Trinity or the deity of Christ. But it's not that I don't think that there's some pretty strong evidence for views. So, you know, I, I hold them and, and can defend them and respect others who, who differ. You know, um, Interestingly, coming back to your, your question here, um, if you have ever wrestled through the Olivet Discourse, uh, and there are a number of views on it, obviously, too, but uh, uh, just as an illustration of this, coming back to how, how different views can be, even among really godly scholars. I mean, one of my heroes in the faith who's still alive is R.C. Sproul. Uh, I just lo- I, I've never heard anyone I, I, I enjoy more hearing preach about the doctrine of justification than R.C. Sproul. He's, in my opinion, one of the best. He is phenomenal. You get him talking about justification, and he can go into so many things, and then the history of the Roman church. I mean, he's just incredible. And I'll never forget hearing him speak on the Olivet Discourse, and his view is strongly preterist. In other words, it's already happened. All of that stuff, you know, there are those who see it as future, and then they wrestle through pre-trib, rapture, post But then there are those that say, that's, that's just done deal. I mean, he says that Jesus, that the coming in that passage is not the second coming. It's the coming of Jesus in judgment in A.D. 70. So Jesus came. This is the lightning flashes from the east to the west. Now he's got a problem because the Rome, Roman army came from the west to the east. And Jesus said it would be east to west. But, but anyway, I, as I sat and listened to him, I thought, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing. This is a hero of mine. And I'll never forget when I was out at Western Seminary one time, we had a guest lecturer, J.I. Packer. Oh, J.I. Packer is another one of my heroes. I mean, his book, Knowing God, if, when, when people ask me, top five books impacted your life, Knowing God is in that top five list. And so he was a guest lecturer, and it was an eschatology class, so they asked him to speak on Revelation 20. And I thought this would be fascinating. And, of course, this is many, many years ago, early on, when I was just wrestling through this stuff. And, and if you're familiar with Revelation 20, you know an angel comes down with the keys. To the, well, he started about saying the angel isn't an angel. It's Jesus. Okay, the angel's not an angel. And then the bottomless pit's not a bottomless pit. And the chains are not chains. And by the time he was done, I thought, well, nothing in that chapter is anything. It's just, I mean, it's nothing. It's just the angel's not an angel, and, the, and a thousand years isn't a thousand years, and nothing is nothing. It's like, why do we have this chapter? We just make it say whatever we wanted to say. It's like, and I'm thinking, how do I process this? Because here I'm a young guy, and J.I. Packer's a hero of mine. So you, you got to, coming back to your, you got to wrestle it through, and you got to try to, Try to remove personalities from it and just say, what is the data? And, and that's what you've got to wrestle through. And it isn't easy because obviously if it were easy, then we'd all agree, right? I mean, we, every conservative evangelical Christian would hold the same view on eschatology. Well, we don't. So it's not easy. You've got to wrestle through it and try to maybe remove some of the, the personalities. Good. Good question. All right? Yeah. I haven't seen it. I don't know that I will see it. So uh, I, I can plead ignorance. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I knew he was in it, and I knew it was out. That's all I knew. So, that's, so. good. Yeah, yeah.
biblically or and by your life when thinking through uh, challenges? Sure. Uh, first one that I would say is I'd remind you of 1 Corinthians 8 1 that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Because when you're in Bible college, you just it's just all about knowledge. And that's a good thing. I mean, you know, there's no virtue in ignorance. Paul often said, you know, I would not have you ignorant of this. And, you know, so Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So there's no virtue in ignorance. So I'm not saying that. But you just have to watch that, you know, knowledge puffs up. And it's easy to get arrogant. Very easy to get arrogant and be condescending and et cetera. So that would be a big one. Just guard your heart as you're going through Bible college. And if you go on to seminary, graduate school, guard your heart that you don't get prideful. Because then you're on the shelf in a sense. The Lord, very limited usage of a prideful vessel. Um, So that would be first. And then secondly, related to that, I would say, it was very close. If you said I just had two. One, guard your heart on that. And then secondly, related, guard your heart in thinking that once you graduate, you've arrived. You've just started. I mean, you've, you've, basically, you've basically laid a foundation to build your life on. But a lot of times it's easy to think when you graduate from Bible college, it's like, I've arrived, I'm there. And, and rather than having the perspective, okay, now I can get started. By God's grace, I've laid a foundation. And now I can continue to pursue Christ, pursue ministry, pursue the lost, obedience, building up the church, etc. So those would be the two. Okay, I think we're out of time. Let's pray and we'll go to lunch. Father, thank you for the time together, especially uh, what great songs we had the opportunity to sing together and then to just wrestle through these issues in your words. So uh, thank you, Lord, and, and pray that maybe some of the things that we have talked about here and were discussed would be profitable. And even as we close by thinking about the question Evan asked, we do pray you would protect our hearts. We just realize how easy it is for us to become prideful in what we've learned or are learning or what we know and, and, and to forget that, that knowledge builds up. It puffs up, but love builds up. And that we are to love you. We are to love people. That means your people to edify them and to love the lost, to, to uh, call them to repentance. So, Use us for those purposes, we pray, and thank you for the lunch we'll partake of. Those who have worked diligently to prepare it, bless the food to our bodies, the interaction together around the tables. In Jesus' name, amen.